Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. It's always a uh, privilege to get to be with you guys at Southeastern Seminary. Thank you for being here. It means a lot to me because when I talk to you, I think of all the firepower that's in this room. I'm so grateful to you and to the churches that sent you and to the people who helped fund you um, that you have forsaken other opportunities to take this opportunity to train for the gospel ministry. And you were at the greatest place in the world, studying the greatest subjects in the world, to go and do the greatest task in the world, and that is to take the gospel to the nations, to the people who've not heard it, and to build up churches that will stand for generations if the Lord tarries to take the gospel to every nation and every neighborhood. So why don't you get out your Bible and turn to John chapter 8. And while you're turning there, um, I am proud to be married to my wife, Kristen. We've been married 25 years this year, hard to believe to me. And uh, she's the love of my life, and she's an incredible, incredible godly woman and a great friend and partner for me in ministry and uh, what, what a blessing she is. And then we do have eight children, six boys and two girls. Our oldest is 22. Our youngest is nine. And uh, that's a lot of fun. We could talk about them for days. And then we also have three foster kids that are with us right now. So we have a full house and a very exciting uh, family. And then I'm honored to get to speak here at Southeastern Seminary because Dr. Danny Aiken and Mrs. Charlotte Aiken are just such dear friends of uh, mine and of Kristen's. They've been our friends for 25 years and have mentored us. And I've had the opportunity to be a part of their uh, family life for a long time at a pretty deep level. And so it's an honor to get to be here. And I love, Charlotte, that you're able to be here. And Danny, if you're watching this on the Internet, I'm really ticked that you didn't come today. <laughs> All right, so my kids, I want you guys to know I'm a pastor. I'm a professor. I did get a master's degree. I got a Ph.D., and uh, yet, uh, Kristen and I have a, a real marriage. We don't have a magic marriage. We don't have a pastor's marriage. We have a real marriage. We have real conversations. Sometimes we have real disagreements. It's not always easy. Our marriage has its good days and its bad days like a lot of others. But I'm very grateful to have it. And our kids also are a bunch of what I would call a bucking broncos. Are there anybody here that are preacher's kids? Do we have any preacher's kids in the house? So you probably know what I mean. I mean, I mean, are there any preacher's kids who would acknowledge that there has been a time in your life before you got to Southeastern Seminary when you were a bucking bronco? Anybody agree to that? Just a couple of you guys. Some of you guys were goody-goodies, but some of you guys, all right, my kids, my kids, they, they are rough. My kids play sports. My kids get in fights. My kids, my kids are the only ones I know that have ever been suspended from homeschool. All right, so, so I want you to understand that when I'm talking to you, I'm not talking to you as somebody who's got it all together. I'm talking to somebody who needs Jesus every single day. And I'm grateful that he's there. Uh, now, one of the things that I have to do as a parent is I've had to teach kids to drive. Now, a lot of you guys don't have kids. A lot of you guys are kids. Some, some of you guys like barely learned how to drive a couple of years ago. But I've had to teach multiple children to drive. And uh, honestly, it's really not that hard. I like to teach the boys to drive. They drive pretty well. They take to it pretty naturally. They drive too fast. But they do drive. They, they do a good job. Except for I have one. And his name's Jeremiah, and he's now a senior in high school. But Jeremiah is a horrible, horrible driver. And I've worked with him, and I've tried, and he just is really, really scary. And 
When he got to be, I didn't let him get his license when he was 16 because he can't drive. And then we worked on it, worked on it. When he was 17, I still didn't get him, let him get his license because he's a horrible driver. He finally turned 18 and said, Dad, I'm like old enough to be drafted. I can vote. You've got to let me get my license. I said, that's fine. You can get your license. And so he was leaving that morning to go take his driver's test. And my wife pulls me aside and she says, what are you doing? He is going to kill someone. I said, honey, don't worry about it. I've got it covered. He's going to have to go down there. They're going to make him drive a car with a person in it. They're going to evaluate him. He's not going to get his license. <laughs> and in one of the greatest failures of civil government in American history, he came home with his license. <laughs> and he was really proud of it, so he drives. Well, he hadn't been driving very long, but I was sitting up in my office on a Saturday afternoon kind of working on some stuff at my house, and Jeremiah, I hear him coming up the stairs, comes in my office. He says, Dad, I've got to tell you something that I did. Now, I hate when that conversation starts that way. I've got to tell you something that I did. I said, okay, what did you do? He said, well, I was just on my home, way home right now, and you know, in our because we live in a gated community, and I don't want you to let your imagination run wild. Everybody lives in a gated community in South Florida. Okay, if you have an apartment complex, a trailer park, everybody's got a gate in front of their community. I'm serious. And so he, he's pulling in. He said, I was pulling into the guard gate, and he says, I, I just, I, I, I crashed through the guard gate. I just crashed through it. Jeremiah, how did you crash through the guard gate? Because the guard gate is supposed to let you, we have a little sticker on our car and there's a reader. And when you pull up to it, it reads the little tag on your car. The guard gate automatically goes up. If you live in here, it wants you to come in. How did you crash through the guard gate? He said, well, I pulled up to the guard gate and it kind of started to open, but then I wasn't close enough and it closed again. And I kind of pulled up and it kind of opened. And it was kind of doing this and I just panicked and floored it. And I went right through the guard gate. I said, okay, well, where is the guard gate now? I guess it's still laying out there in the middle of the road. I said, well, Jeremiah, when you crash through a guard gate, you've got to do something. He said, I am. I'm coming to tell you. So, okay, so I call up to the security office and I drive out there. And Barney Fife's out there already with his bullet in his pocket, you know, and he's looking around at the guard gate trying to figure out what's going on. And I said, hey, listen, uh, I called and my son just crashed through that guard gate. And the guard, he's like 20 years old. And he starts to lecture me about parenting. And he says, oh, yeah, well, how in the world did this happen? And this guard gate goes up and this is going to cost money. And you'd have to be an idiot to drive through the guard gate. And what in the world's the matter with you? And I could only think I could think of. I said, hey, it's not my fault. My son did it. Not my fault. And he said, well, if it's your son, I guess it's your responsibility. There are a lot of things in this world that you're going to find that are not your fault, but they're your responsibility. Marriage can be like that. Parenting can be like that. Church can be like that. There are things in this world that are not your fault, but they are your responsibility. In fact, that is why you are here at Southeastern Seminary. The problems in this world are not your fault. The poverty in this world is not your fault. The racism in this world is not all your fault. The, the, the imbalances in this world, the abuses in this world are not your fault, but you are now 
embarking into the gospel ministry. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says that it is as if God was making his appeal through us. So God has taken the ministry of reconciliation on himself and then given the ministry of reconciliation to us. So what is happening in this world is not your fault, but it is indeed your responsibility. And if you don't like it, then just abandon the gospel ministry. That's what we're here for. You know, Jesus actually saved us and filled us with the Holy Spirit and then gathered us together in churches so that we would do in this world what Jesus would do if he was physically present. That's what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be saying what Jesus would say and carrying the way that Jesus would care and doing what Jesus would do if he was physically present. That's why Jesus said, it's going to be better for you if I go than if I stayed with you. Because if I go, the comforter can come to you, the spirit can come to you. And now you can do greater things because there are millions of you full of the Spirit instead of just one. Even though he's the Son of God, he was still one man in one human body in one place at one time. So we're supposed to be doing what Jesus would do. It's not our fault, but it is our responsibility. In 1993, this guy named Kevin Carter was a renowned Pulitzer Prize winning photojournalist. And he went to the Sudan to document for the world some of the abuses that were happening in the refugee camps in the civil war in Africa and so he went there and what Kevin Carter would do he'd travel the world and he would go to the most war-torn and hurting places and take pictures of it and then he would show those pictures to the world they'd be published in the world's publications it would draw attention to some of the worst things that were happening on the planet he goes to this refugee camp in the Sudan and outside this refugee camp he sees this little girl crawling in the dirt and she's about to die. Her belly is distended, her ribs are poking out and she's just there in, in the dirt. I think, do we have a picture of that? Can we put that up? And, and so this is the picture that he took. He takes this picture and he set up his camera and he waited for the light to get just right and he watched that girl crawl in the dirt and he saw that vulture behind her and he actually waited a while to see if the vulture would spread its wings because he thought that would make a more dramatic picture but it never did and so he snaps this picture this picture is so graphic and so gripping it gets put on the cover of the new york times and gets uh published all around the world this picture won kevin carter the pulitzer prize in 1993 and um that's the highest achievement that a photojournalist could ever experience they brought him back to the United States and he began to go around to these different banquets where they would honor him for his work and they would show this picture and he would be awarded for this picture and at the end of every one of those banquets Kevin Carter's heart would sink because at the end of the banquet he would give his talk and then people would come up to him and do you know what they wanted to know what happened to the little girl what happened now, Kevin Carter's job was to be a photojournalist. He wasn't really there to address the issues. He was there to draw attention to the issue so that other people could address it. But he had to admit to people that he didn't know what happened to the little girl. And it wasn't just this issue, but all of the pain and all of the difficulties that Kevin Carter experienced in his career stacked up on him. And within a year after he took this picture and was awarded the Pulitzer Prize, Kevin Carter took his own life. The problems of the world were not his fault, but he felt that maybe he should have taken 
some responsibility. There's a story in the Bible about a time when Jesus saw a little girl crawling in the dirt and about to die. Her situation wasn't his fault, but he made it his responsibility. Let's read about it in John chapter 8. Here's what the Word of God says. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women, so what do you say? They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger in the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Okay, now I know that I'm speaking to a bunch of scholars. A lot of you are getting your master's degree, your undergraduate degree, getting your doctorate. Some of you are studying New Testament, and you're automatically thinking, this is why they shouldn't let pastors preach at seminaries. Does he not know that there are little brackets right there, right there in our Bibles that say the original manuscripts, many of them do not even contain this passage. Does he not even know that there are textual issues with this passage? Look, I got a master's degree. I got a PhD. I know there are textual issues. I think we should preach it. If you don't know what the textual issues are, Google is your friend. Knock yourself out. I'm not going to talk about that. So here's what the Word of God is talking about. Jesus is preaching. His popularity is high. He's preaching in the temple. Now, Jesus, when he taught, he taught with power and authority. And they said no one else had ever taught like this before. And Jesus had, because he was an expert on the law of God, he was an expert on the Old Testament books, Jesus had a way of reimagining and reinterpreting the Old Testament in a fresh way that no one had ever heard before. And he began to explain the stories and the teachings of the Old Testament and the, and the storyline of the Old Testament in light of something new he called the kingdom of God. And Jesus, when he would teach us, people were gripped by it because they never heard anything about anything like it. And the people who didn't like the way he was teaching it were the Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of the law who taught in a more traditional way that was much more restrictive and difficult for people to bear. He embarrassed the Pharisees by his popularity. He shamed the Pharisees because of their shallow surface understanding of the law of God. And Jesus was constantly challenging them. And so they, in turn, were constantly challenging him. So Jesus is standing in the temple. He's teaching the word of God. And people are riveted by it. And right in the middle of his sermon, here come the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees are the people who take all the fun out of religion. Have you ever met a Pharisee before? You ever seen a Pharisee in the church where you've grown up or a Pharisee in the church where you attend now? I'd like to tell you that at family church, we've rooted out all Phariseeism, but it keeps cropping back up. In fact, inside of me is a Pharisee always trying to get out and you have the same problem. And so these Pharisees bring this woman, they fight through the crowd, they bring the woman to Jesus and they throw her down at his feet. And you can imagine what this looks like. I mean, this poor woman. She's already been humiliated. She's been literally dragged out of bed. They've probably been rough with her. I'm using some imagination, but just picture the scene. Her lip might be bleeding a little bit. Her clothes are torn. Her hair is disheveled. She's shamed. And they bring her in front of everybody, and they don't care 
what has happened to her to bring her to this point. They don't care how it feels to her. They are using her as a pawn to try to embarrass Jesus in this back and forth political theological game. And they throw her down in front of everyone and they say, this woman has been caught in adultery. And they challenge Jesus with the law and they're trying to put Jesus in a tough spot. They're trying to put Jesus in a tough spot by challenging him about the law because they think that Jesus is either going to have to publicly repudiate the Jewish law, which he has been teaching, which the law does indeed say that if someone's caught in adultery, they could be executed for it, even though the Jews of that day weren't even doing that, and they couldn't do that because the Romans wouldn't let them. They weren't authorized to execute people for religious moral crimes. And so, so that, that really wasn't an issue. But uh, they, they said he's either going to repudiate the law or he's going to repudiate himself. Because they knew that Jesus had a reputation for constantly taking people that religion had pushed down and pushed out and Jesus would pull them in and lift them up. He did it all the time. And they knew that his character was to have compassion on sinners. He was a friend of sinners and they knew it and they hated him for it. And so they knew Jesus was going to either have to repudiate the law or repudiate himself. Think of all the stories of hurting people that had been pushed down and pushed out by religious people. Think about Zacchaeus and Matthew that were mean and stingy tax collectors and turncoats. The woman with that nasty uh, and religiously disqualifying issue of blood. All of those lepers with their body parts visibly disintegrating. The demoniac chained up outside of town in the cemetery. The woman at the well with her multiple broken marriages and her live-in boyfriend. The crazy prostitute giving Jesus a foot bath with her tears and her perfume. All of these people were pushed down and pushed out by the religious people. And then Jesus comes along they were pushed down and pushed out because of their past because of their sinful choices because of their physical challenges because of their race but Jesus doesn't push people down he doesn't push people out he's always trying to pull these people in he's always trying to lift these people up and so the Pharisees are trying to make Jesus choose between violating the law or violating his own sense of mercy and compassion for the sinner and this poor woman is caught in the middle and you can imagine what had to have happened to the woman when she was caught in the act. First of all, this is the beginning, this is the original, this is the first century Me Too movement, isn't it? They take the woman, throw her down. Now, unfortunately for me, I've been a pastor for over 20 years and there have been multiple times where I've been in conversations and confrontations when couples were caught in adultery. In 100% of the conversations I've been involved in, the person committing adultery always committed adultery with another person 100% of the time. They never committed adultery alone. This woman didn't either. Where's the man? Why is the woman the one dragged in there? I'll tell you why she's dragged in because she's culturally weak. She's physically weak. She has no economic currency. She has no political currency. She has no brother or father or husband to stand up for her. And in fact, it's possible that she was actually caught in the act sleeping with a Pharisee, one of their buddies. So they're covering up his sin and exposing her sin to the world because she's easy prey. Good thing that doesn't happen anymore. And there she is. She's lonely. She's hurting. She's humiliated. When she gets thrown at his feet, they ask him this question, what do you say? We're going to stone her or not? And Jesus had an incredible way 
of responding to the Pharisees by not directly answering their questions, doesn't he? He usually answers their question with a better question. But in this case, Jesus gets down, takes his finger, and he writes in the dirt. Now, when you read the text of Scripture, one of the things that you should do if you're going to teach it is try to think about what was actually happening in the story. And to do that, you're going to have to use a little bit of sanctified imagination. So I want to use a little sanctified imagination because it's an age-old question. What in the world did he write in the dirt? Because whatever he wrote in the dirt caused the Pharisees who came with rocks to stone the woman to drop the rocks and walk away. What did he write? I think he wrote the names of their girlfriends in the dirt. I think he just got down on his knee and looked over at old Pharisee Abraham and just wrote, Susie. Right, Abraham? And old Abraham's over there with a rock in his hand. You know what? I was going to stone the lady, but I've got a dentist appointment. He dropped his rock and he walked off. He looked over at old Pharisee Jacob, Betty. And Jacob said, I was going to stone the woman, but my wife told me to hit the grocery store on the way home. I've got to go. He's gone. And one by one, starting with the oldest, they leave. Until finally, it's just Jesus and the woman. And Jesus had said to those men, let him who's without Sin cast the first stone. I don't think that Jesus was saying that you have to be perfect to call sin, sin, because if that was true, we couldn't preach. He's not saying you have to be perfect. He's actually making a, a commentary on the Pharisees because they presented themselves as if they were perfect, but Jesus knew a man and he knew their heart and he could see them to the core and he knew that they were hypocrites and sinners. And so he said, you don't present yourself as perfect when you're not perfect. So whoever was without sin, do not cast the first stone. But not only that, he wasn't simply giving the lady a pass. He was calling sin sin. He told her to go into sin no more. But Jesus had compassion for the woman. I mean, think about the woman. Okay, likely she was a prostitute. What has to happen in the life of a woman for her to become a prostitute? Do you think the Pharisees cared about that? I mean, there's no little girl that's like six years old, seven years old, eight years old thinking, you know, as I grow up, if I work on my skills, I can become a prostitute. One day, that could be me. Now, what happened to her probably when she was a little girl, somebody who was supposed to take care of her, who she was supposed to be able to trust, probably did something unspeakable to her when she was a little girl and probably got her thinking the wrong way about her sexuality. And as she grew up, for whatever reason, she probably didn't have a brother or an uncle or a father to take care of her the way that they should. And so she grew up out of economic necessity, having to figure out how to do what she had to do to make a living. And one thing led to another. And she probably dealt with all kinds of depression and all kinds of guilt. She probably dealt with substance abuse and everything else that prostitutes deal with just to make it through the day. She probably felt horrible about herself and Jesus cared. Jesus cared about what had happened to her to bring her to this point because some things were broken in her and in her life that put her in that situation. And Jesus says, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. He's condemning the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. He's challenging their standing to sit in judgment 
one sinner judging another sinner. But then he says to the lady, go and sin no more. Now the lady had made some choices too. And she's a sinner just like the ones who were there to stone her. But Jesus had compassion on her and he cared for her. And Jesus offers her grace and he offers her mercy. You know, Jesus had the right to do that. The Pharisees did not have the right to stone her, to judge her. He did have the right to offer her her grace and mercy. You know why? Because it was only a matter of months before Jesus was going to go outside the temple and outside the city wall and outside the city of Jerusalem. And they were going to put nails in his hands and nails in his feet. And he was going to be crucified for the sins of the world, for your sins and for my sins and for the sins of the woman who was laying at his feet. Jesus was going to be crucified and he knew it. So when Jesus says, go and sin no more, when Jesus says, if those other men don't condemn you, neither do I condemn you, he had the right to release her from her sins because he was going to take her sins that were not his fault and he was going to make them his responsibility. And that's what he did for her and that's what he did for you and that's what he did for me and that's what he did for every person in every neighborhood and every language and every place and every race all over the world. Jesus took our sins and made our sins his responsibility so he alone has the right to forgive sins and to grant grace and mercy but because he's been raised from the dead he offers freely an invitation for every person from every situation from every background regardless of where they've been or what they've done to have their sins forgiven to have mercy and grace poured out on them so they could be saved and that's why Jesus says where are those who condemn you neither do I condemn you go and sin no more because Jesus was going to take her sin and her condemnation on himself. And I've thought a lot about this recently. My wife and I have these three foster kids, and we never thought we were going to get into foster care. But we have, and um, I've got this little boy, and his name's Rio, and Rio's seven years old. And uh, Rio has been moved around from place to place and been taken from his mom and he loves his mom and his mom loves him she's not like a bad person she's just not able to take care of him for a number of reasons and so he sees his mom every week and it just breaks my heart because this little seven-year-old boy is so so confused all the time and so because he's been moved around and uh, probably things have happened to him that I'm not aware of I'm pretty sure and and it's just hard for him and because of that he has these little meltdowns Uh, now the Scroggins boys that have grown up at my house aren't allowed to have meltdowns it's not permitted okay so they don't do that but he's not been raised in our home he doesn't know and frankly a lot of stuff's happened to him that have never happened to the Scroggins boys and so he has these meltdowns he just he just throws himself on the floor and he starts saying horrible things about himself and horrible things about everybody and things he wishes would happen that were horrible and he just throws himself on the ground starts crying and just having a meltdown and I went over and he's kind of a little guy and I just scooped him up and I sat down out in my backyard and I put him on my lap and he's just crying and he's saying all this horrible stuff and I just held him. And it's funny because he didn't push back. He just kind of leaned into my chest and he was weeping. I don't mean like little boy. I don't, I don't mean like tears. I mean like sobbing. And he, my chest is getting wet with how hard he's crying. And then he just starts to say, I want to go home. I want to go home, but I don't have a home. I want to go home. I don't have a home. Nobody wants me. I want to go home, but I don't have a home. Nobody wants me. 
And when I heard him say that, I couldn't help but think of the people in our city and the people in our congregation and the people in the neighborhoods where our churches are. And that's the cry of their heart. They're just like that little boy. I want to go home. Something inside me tells me there's a place for me where I should be wanted, where I should be loved, where I should be welcomed, where I should be valued. I want to go home, but I don't have a home. That's what Jesus is offering the people in this world. That's what you are here to offer the people in this world, to give them a home, to give them a place, to give them a family. That's the gospel. And that's what Jesus offers to this poor woman caught in adultery. He'll give her a home for her heart. And that's the ministry of reconciliation that's given to us. Jesus takes broken people crawling in the dirt, guilty and ashamed. He makes our sins his responsibility. He makes us a family. He gives us a purpose. And then he sends us as ambassadors into the world. We're supposed to do in the world what Jesus would do if he was physically here. The poverty, the racism, the abuse, the injustice in this world. It is not all our fault. But because we are gospel carriers, God has made it our responsibility And so all of your study at Southeastern Seminary and the college at Southeastern, everything you study in ethics and philosophy and Greek and Hebrew and church history and cultural engagement, it better teach you to love Jesus more and love people more. And if it doesn't, you're on an adventure in missing the point because the point is for you to be equipped to go find the women crawling in the dirt, the boys and girls crawling in the dirt, the men crawling in the dirt, broken who've been pushed down and pushed out and for you to pull them in and lift them up and point them to Christ. That is the mission. That's the mission that we're on. And most of the people that you meet in the churches and on the fields where you're going to serve aren't going to be debating three-point or four-point or five-point Calvinism, right? They're not going to be debating whether you should have a multiple elders model or elder rule or elder-led or single pastor model. They're not even equipped to have that conversation. And frankly, they, they don't care. They're not equipped and they don't care whether you believe in live teaching or video venue for your multi-site megachurch. They don't care. They're crawling in the dirt. They need someone to say, I'll make you my responsibility. They're filled with shame. They feel the sting as religion has pushed them down and pushed them out. You, I, we have to pull them in and lift them up and point them to Jesus. So I told you I have a real marriage, and I do. And one of the things I do is my wife and I go to the movies together from time to time. And uh, to be honest with you, and, and men that are men here, I just want you to know, I, I'm a man. When I go to the movies, let me tell you something. I either want to laugh like crazy or I want to see somebody blow something up, okay? That, that's why I go to the movies. I don't want a life lesson. I don't want to have my soul stirred. I don't want to change my worldview. I work at church all week long. When I go to the movies, I want to escape. I want to laugh like crazy. I want to see somebody blow something up or possibly a movie where they laugh like crazy and blow stuff up. That's the best. (laughs) But every once in a while, my wife talks me into going to a different kind of a movie. And you guys know the saying, happy wife, happy life. It's true. So sometimes I have to she wanted me to go to this movie. I did not want to go. I was even embarrassed when I bought the tickets. I was hoping that no one would see me in this movie. I even bought a large popcorn and drink, which I never do because I'm too cheap. I, I bought the whole thing just so I could put it in front of my face, hoping people wouldn't see me in this movie. And you know how they, we go to the movies nowadays in some places, they, they give you assigned seats. So our movie has assigned seats. I, I, I go to the movie. 
behind me, I hear a little tap on my shoulder. Pastor Jimmy, I didn't think you liked this. <laughs> Sitting right next to me, sits down. Oh, Pastor Jimmy, it's a deacon. And his wife at our church, not even one of my favorite deacons, to be totally honest with you. And he's sitting right next to me. I'm kind of like, okay. And if you're watching on the internet right now, I'm not talking about you. I didn't even want to be here. It was a movie called The Greatest Showman. It's a musical. I love that movie so much. <laughs> I love the story. I love the music. I got the music on my playlist. You know what I mean? Like, against all my better instincts, I really love this movie. It was phenomenal. One of the best movies I've ever seen. And this story, you know, P.T. Barnum is such an incredible, and I know they took some liberties with the story, but the way the story's told in the movie, what he does is he has this idea and he goes and he finds the most broken people that you can imagine. He finds all of the people who've been pushed down and pushed out their whole life. He goes and finds the little short guy and he goes and finds the tatted up guy and he goes and finds the transvestites and he goes and finds the contortionists and he goes and finds the trans trapeze people who moved here from another country. He goes and finds all of these people that no one else wants. They've been pushed down and pushed out their whole life. And here's what he does. He pulls these people from the margins together and he loves them and he teaches them to love each other and he makes them a family and he gives them a purpose. You ever heard a story like that before? He pulls in the people who are broken and have been pushed down and pushed out. He lifts them up. He loves them. He teaches them to love each other. He makes them a family and he gives them a purpose. That's the gospel. Every movie whispers his name. That is the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus is doing. Pulling people in and lifting people up. And he's given us the ministry of reconciliation. And so why does that happen? Why is that possible? It's possible because there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. They lose all their guilty stains. They lose all their guilty stains. And sinners plunged beneath that flood they lose all their guilty stains. And that's how Jesus pulls us in. That's how he lifts us up. Because our sins are not his fault. But he has made them his responsibility. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe 
working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.